0: Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a new podcast that's all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. This episode is a sermon Jonathan preached on Easter Sunday at North Shore Vineyard Church in Covington, Louisiana. Enjoy.
1: Welcome, Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Everybody said amen. I'm going to get some, to some scripture in a bit, but, man, I'm excited to be here. By the way, I, I turned 40 yesterday. I'm going to go and just, I'll just say that. I've turned 40. This is also the beginning of a new era, a whole new era, a whole new, I, I'm just, and I am hitting my prime just now, y'all, I'm telling you, I was like, I'm all right with it. I'm all right being 40. I've been weathered. <laughs> I don't have any point in my life I want to go back to other than, you know. And a lot of that journey, and I don't tell this, you know, I mean, I wrote a book called How to Survive a Shipwreck, Crispin mentioned was my last book, and so a lot of this is is in there, but it's not my habit these days, frankly, to tell too much of that story, because that journey's been long and painful, and there was a time to talk, you know, I just feel like in some ways, there are other things that God is, is doing now, but you know, I could not just start talking about something else, being here. And not say a little bit about that journey and what it's meant and what it means for me to be here now. So the first time I ever came to New Orleans, I was 12 years old. And this is funny to me now. The Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee is the denomination I come from. Wonderful folks. My dad's a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher, all that. Deep roots in tradition. Kind of a holiness Pentecostal expression. So uh, they had the denominational General Assembly in New Orleans in 1992. And... I think I was about, oh, I was 14. I'd be 14 then. And I'm telling you, it was like it was like I discovered another planet. I had never seen or experienced anything like New Orleans before. And I, I was terrified by it. I was horrified. Holiness Pentecostal boy from the south. I was horrified, but also so fascinated. This is amazing. I hope you won't think I'm being crass here, but like my lingering image of that of that time was how funny it was to see all these church of god people men in suits and ties women in their dresses and like just full on like just just very very like churchy folk walking down bourbon street <laughs> this is the early 90s so probably a little you know things not quite as cleaned up in terms of open whatever and i have this vivid image of all these holiness folk walking down bourbon street and there was this stretch where at the time there was a stand on each side of the street that were selling ties in the shape of penises that's that's the image i have Intuitive, intuitively by the way it still seems to me that should be peanut, but i'm not sure if that's right they're walking down this they're walking down the street and i just remember having this jarring it's like all the Church of God holiness people in a place like this, and as I saw the bars and the various whatever, like because I was so sheltered and scared to death of going to hell and rapture and judgment and everything else, like I, I was walking. I walked down Bourbon Street like this, like I was kind of like, don't look to the right, don't look to the left, like like, like don't just don't think about it. I was like, just like this, and that was the last time I was in New Orleans until I came back. At the worst point of my life, absolute lowest point of my life, I had met some good friends. I'm staying with a mom here, uh, Tim and Barbara Gilbert, who had invited me to come and be at their place. I, was, I had stepped down from the church that I founded and pastored for nine years. I was walking through a divorce process that was extremely painful, and I felt like very much my fault been married for 16 years, did not have children. Um, everything I ever knew and loved was in Charlotte. I'm an only child, and my parents were there and all that, and I just kind of, I felt like I was completely unraveling, and I really um, say this in all honesty, like I, I really didn't know if I was going to survive that season of my life. Like, I really didn't. It was like I was so displaced and so disoriented, and you know, I think because I was always such a conscientious, like whatever, I mean, I never even had like a, I didn't have a prodigal season of my life, you know? I didn't, I probably tasted alcohol for the first time in my, in my mid 20s or something. Like, I was just, I was too scared to sin. So it was so like, so the idea of like being where I was, like, I just, I couldn't take it, I couldn't metabolize it. I, I just, I completely freaked out and would not have come if not for the kindness of these folks I'd got to know who really kind of pushed me on it. And finally, like, I, just desperation. I was so miserable, like, I need to try something and be somewhere. And I'm telling you, like, coming here for that season, I spent about a month here. Um, and I, I fell in love with New Orleans in a way that like, I don't love any other city on earth. Because now I'm, I came back to the city beneath the sea when my own life was on the underside. You hear the music differently. You see the sights differently. You smell the smells differently. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because if there's anything that this part of the country has, it is soul. And you actually don't really have soul. Oh, you have it. You don't, you don't really excavate it like it does it, uh, like you, the soul doesn't really come out of you until you suffer. Is that fair? Like that's how your soul gets formed is through suffering, through pain, through loss, through mistakes. It's how it happens. I hadn't had any of that. So it's like now all of a sudden it's like, oh. This city that I was so terrified of when I was 14 years old was like, oh, man, this, there's no place in the world I'd rather be than here. I remember having this, I wrote about this a bit in the book, and I'm not trying to plug that. It's just like this, this part, even though it's there, it's just not something I talk about a lot now, but I feel like it's important to share here. I, I had the distinct memory. They kind of live in uptown, and so I would kind of walk part of the way, take the trolley and whatever. But once I would kind of, every morning, I would go into the quarter, and I would walk through the streets. And you know that kind of like, you know the sort of like morning after smell of the quarter. (laughs) And I'm kind of, and I'm walking through it. And once again, instead of like, you know, 14, that put me off. Like, at this point, I'm like, (sighs) it was, I mean, it was perfect for me. But there was something, I would walk through, and I'm trying to be pious here, but I would walk through the streets And I would go into the cathedral there in the middle of the square every morning and do like morning prayer. And it was like the very landscape of that space was rewiring me. This notion of God right here in the thick of everything. God right in the middle. God right in the middle of the messy things. It's a very spiritual place. Voodoo and Catholicism, two sides of the same coin, we, people here are intuitively spiritual even if they don't know w- quite which direction they want to go like it's a spiritual place and i it was like there was something about being in the middle of that cathedral in the middle of that of this particular place that just gave me the grace to start to welcome god in the middle of my mess gave me the grace to be human in that and to and to em- em- embrace it so i would go from there i would pray and then i would Perch up in a bar and write all afternoon. Hilarious to be the Pentecostal preacher, now in New Orleans, writing in a bar, thinking this is the bottom of the slippery slope. This is everything my parents ever warned about, right? <laughs> Except not really. True stories, I was being mended. Like, my soul was coming back to life, and I encountered God very powerfully. But I will say this, even though it was a wonderful experience in many ways, I did kind of feel like in a lot of ways I came here to die, you know? it was like a lot of the last tentacles of the life I'd lived before and everything that mattered to me about it. It felt like those things were, you know, were really, really were dying. And that's why, of course, I've been back since, because now, you know, like I make up reasons to come here because I think it's so wonderful. But it's especially amazing for me, one day after turning 40, to be in my favorite part of the country celebrating Easter because I can say from my, like, bones, I have experienced so much resurrection. I believe that Jesus is resurrected stronger than I ever have before. Never, never been more of a believer in any of that than I am right now. So weird how that works, because I think especially when my life unraveled, I was scared. I was a professional Christian. I fell into a full-time ministry job when I was 22 years old. When I left ministry in that season, my thought was, who knows whether or not I even believe in Jesus. Like, if I, if I didn't have a not a large, but I didn't have a paycheck. If, that, if, if I didn't have that, would I still even believe any of that stuff? And what was so crazy about it is that walking through that season, instead of walking away from Jesus, which, you know, there's grace if you need to go on whatever kind of journey. That's not the point. But God became more real to me than he ever had been before. And here's the part that, that still feels scandalous for me to talk about. I had more powerful experiences of the Holy Spirit on the other side of that crisis than I ever did before. Now, that just seems weird because my understanding and expectation was so long as I'm minding my manners and keeping the rules, God shows up. And instead, when I was flat on my back and utterly incapable of helping myself in any way, God became more real than God had ever been in all of my life. Imagine that. See, people have a little bit of journey before coming to faith, understand something of this. I, I didn't get that. So much of that was in my my head before. And it was like through that death process and resurrection process, things were coming to life in my soul. Thank you for indulging me. It's like, oh, it's story. Here's the nice man who came and told us stories and said something mildly dirty when he was talking about Bourbon Street. Um, I do want to go to a text, though. And I won't take too much time here because the point here is simple and very connected with everything that I've shared thus far. John chapter 20 beginning with verse 1. I love this text so much. Have I prayed yet? Have I done any praying so far? I did pray. That's good. Good. Thank you. That's good. Just want to make sure. I prayed. Otherwise, it may not be anointed. John, if if I don't pray... See, that's holiness tendency still coming out. If I didn't pray at the beginning of the message, then God might withdraw his spirit. Comical footnote, this is really not that pertinent for the message today, but I do feel like I should at least drive by this. Part of what's so funny is that what you have John here repeatedly doing is referring to himself in the third person. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And also, uh, I outran Peter. That's, uh, that, it's, that's, that's what you have going on here. little disciple rivalry uh, wrapped in piety. Verse 5, he bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went to the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, <laughs> in case you forgot, I got there first, he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture That he must rise from the dead. Then disciples returned to their homes. Now I read that because I love that part of the text, and I feel like the preface does matter. But I really want to point your attention to verse eleven through eighteen. Here is where what I really feel like is the word for the moment. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, "Woman." why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they had laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Then Jesus said to her, in that way that only Jesus can, he speaks her name. Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold on to me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She told him, she told them rather, that he had said these things to her. And Mary becomes the first evangelist, this woman evangelist of the risen Jesus. She's the one who gets to come back and tell the other disciples this good news. This morning I really just, I know I've told you a lot of my story already, but there's really just two things I want to hone in on here. First, this fact that Mary is standing outside the tomb. Her faith has been devastated in ways that some of you know what it's like for your faith to be devastated. The dream was completely dead. Mary Magdalene, who deeply loved Jesus... Well, I've never bought the idea that there was, like, which was has been, you know, kind of bantered around in pop culture a time or two. I never bought the idea that Mary Magdalene and Jesus had some kind of a romantic relationship. What I do believe is in the text, if you're paying attention, they certainly had a special relationship. She had a deep love for Jesus. Jesus had a deep love for her. There was, he was her whole world. And it's interesting to me now that Mary, who feels this grief so profoundly, Mary, who's the one who's experienced such deep brokenheartedness, of course, she's the first one that Jesus appears to. She's the one who'd suffered the most. She's the one who was grieving the most deeply. I really believe this not to be cute or cliche or whatever. The deeper you enter into the grief, the deeper you go into the sorrow, the greater the proximity is to resurrection hope. The deeper and darker that you go in, the more bitter the tears, the, cl- the, the more in proximity you are to resurrection. I didn't, this is not in any kind of notes, because I don't have notes, but this, this, I don't think I've ever, that's ever hit me quite like this before this moment. Jesus appears to those who need him the most. The resurrected one comes along, is, is visible to the ones who are in the deepest place of need. This is part of the counterintuitiveness of the kingdom of God. This is how it is that people can be blessed when they mourn. Because if you mourn, you will be comforted. If there's no space for, mourn, for mourning, there's no space for comfort. If there's no space for weeping and grieving and going into the dark night of the soul, there's not space for resurrection. The grieving, the sorrowing, all uh, the sorrow, all of that is important. All of that matters, but when Jesus appears to her, and, and, and this is just kind of, and this is frying all my circuits in this moment, she doesn't recognize Jesus at first because she presumes that he's the gardener. The form in which Jesus comes is so familiar, is so common, is so ordinary. That she doesn't, she doesn't perceive what's really going, on, she doesn't recognize him. And one of the things that's hitting me in particular this Easter season that I've never quite put together quite like this, even though I, I love these stories separately, I've never thought about them together. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus, if you know that story, they're walking away from Jerusalem, walking away from the holy city, the place that was once a, a holy space is now desecrated because Jesus has been killed there. They're walking away in complete despair. And as they're walking, Jesus is walking alongside them, and they don't recognize him. They don't know it. Mary sees Jesus here, and she doesn't know that it's Jesus. Here's the thing. Through the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, something already has fundamentally changed about the whole creation. That's the Christian story. It's the reason, I'm going somewhere with this, y'all hang with me. The reason that when Jesus dies, that there's all these apocalyptic signs, and the Gospels record things like there's earthquake and lightning and thunder and all of that. The reason there's all these apocalyptic signs is because the idea is that a whole new time really has dawned in the resurrection of Christ. The creation itself, the cosmos itself has been changed through the resurrection of Jesus. Everything has changed through the death and resurrection of this one man. For Christians, the resurrection is a historical reality. Like, that, that's already happened. That, it, God has already done it. Jesus has already been risen from the dead. What I'm trying to tell you is this. I think a lot of us are still praying and hoping for resurrection, We're still praying for a resurrection that's already happened. What we need, I think for many of us, is not another resurrection, but a recognition of the ways in which Jesus is risen already. Do you hear what I'm saying at all? Not another miracle, except the miracle of having our own eyes opened, because I'm convinced what happens over and over again in our lives, I know it happens in mine, is that I have very certain concrete expectations about what resurrection is supposed to look like. I have ideas. If I grieve something, if I bury something, I have all these ideas about how the new life is supposed to look. I have ideas of what it's supposed to look like for God to come to my rescue. I think I know the miracle that I need. And then we have these moments Like Mary has here, when what she realizes is that the resurrected one was already staring her in the face. He was already in her presence. She was already in his presence. They were already beholding each other. The resurrection was already staring her in the face. God had already done the work. The miracle that she needed was one of recognition where her eyes could be opened to see the ways in which Christ was resurrected already. I'm not sure if y'all are as excited about this as I am. I don't know if this is heavy. I'm not sure. I'll just, but I just want, I want to throw this out. I'm throwing this out, and I'm hoping that the Spirit of God will sovereignly give somebody that kind of touch to, re- to, re- to really get this in here. I'm just wondering who in here right now is in a space where there's been death and loss and grieving and mourning, and it feels like it's all over. And there's this way in which you're waiting for God to show up and make a way. Is it possible that the way is already in front of you? It's just in a form you weren't looking for? Is it possible that redemption's already here? It just didn't turn out to be six foot tall, white, blue eyed Jesus from the pictures. And since he didn't look like the Sunday school pictures, You just assumed, well, that's not Jesus. I know what Jesus, oh, he has long, sandy blonde hair. (laughs) Maybe there's provision, but it's not the kind of provision you were looking for. It's not quite the provision you hope for, so you don't recognize it as provision. Maybe there's a way out or a way through that's already there, but it's not the path you would choose for yourself. It means coming to see some things that you wouldn't really want to see. Because the fact of the matter is, there's a lot of things about resurrection that just freak us out. The natural ending of Mark's gospel ends with the disciples simply terrified after the resurrection of Jesus. Sometimes in that process of death and resurrection, we come to see things that we don't want to see, to know things we don't want to know. Our, everything about our experience of God shifts and changes, and there is something about that. I don't even know what I'm talking about right now, but it feels right, That, that like is fundamentally scary, Because now, this resurrected Jesus is real, and he's alive, and he's on the move, and he won't be confined. And there's a wildness to that God. There's a wildness to how that God works. And the life that we lived before resurrection was fairly ordered and self-contained. There are real reasons sometimes to not want to see the new thing that God is doing. There are real reasons to want to bury our heads in the sand. There are real reasons that sometimes we're not ready to step into that. I don't know who that's for or what it looks like, but I just feel that so strongly that for a number of us, there are ways that we've been waiting for answers, begging for them as if we're beggars. God, who calls us sons and daughters, begging for an appearance, begging for God to do something that maybe God has already done or is already doing. What needs to happen is just, I feel like this sounds more mundane than I want it to be. Oh, it's just a shift in perspective. I'm not talking about going from pessimism to optimism. I'm not talking about looking on the sunny side of life. A lot of what I hear like that in charismatic circles, of which I am a part, does it sound to me like faith? It sounds like denial. When you bury your head in the sands and you pretend that things are not happening, that's not faith, that's denial. I'm not talking about denial. I'm not talking about looking at the glass as half full rather than half empty. I'm talking about actually seeing something of the resurrected God at work in your life but in a way that you weren't anticipating, in a way that feels scary, because even death, as awful as that is, when familiar things die, how do, I don't even know how to say this. There's still something about that, that, though. It's that 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 we understand. Resurrection is always pulling us into a life where we don't understand. It's going to be about trust. It's going to be a whole different way of being in the world. I, I am I. I, I'm I already. I'm taking way too much time. Here's the only thing I want to say about this text. Oh, we're okay. Good. Thank you. It is Easter. Jesus is risen from the dead, y'all. We can eat gumbo later. Jesus, all right. He got up out of the tomb. Can't you just honor Jesus a little longer on his birthday? That's terrible. Just kidding. Sorry. But here's the other thing about this that's so provocative to me and profound to me. So when Mary recognizes that it's Jesus and they have this deep rapport, this deep love, this deep fellowship with each other, it's so interesting to me that Jesus says something that on the surface almost seems cruel. She recognizes him. She's elated. She feels the thrill of resurrection for just a moment. And what does Jesus say? Don't hold on to me now, Mary. Don't hold on. I've not yet ascended To the Father. Have you ever thought about that before? What is what's happening here? There's something resurrection has so changed even the body of Jesus now leading up to his ascension. He's so different now. Here's what I see happening here. Mary had known Jesus one way before. Mary had known Jesus in one context on the front side of dying. She had one kind of experience of God. Now, through resurrection, there's this transformation. Jesus' very body is being transformed. And I think what's happening here is this way of Jesus saying to Mary, Mary, you won't get to know me now the way you knew me before. You can only know me in the way I'm presenting myself to you right now. Does anybody hear what I'm saying? The only God you can know is the God that's here right now can't hang on to the past. See, the trouble is, I think often we think we're clinging on to God when we're actually clinging to old ideas about God. We're actually clinging on to an image. A God who has always been dynamic and active and alive, we turn into a statue. There's a reason why God was always so firmly against idolatry, There's a reason even to this day. You know how we minimize the impact of any saints, even of our time? We make statues of them. If you make a statue out of Martin Luther King, and you can say, well, we have a holiday, then you don't have to contend with anything he ever said about poverty. You don't have to contend with anything he ever said about war, because we revere the man as a saint. And we revere people in a way that somehow allows us to escape their message. Well, I honor that person. Now I don't have to contend with anything they actually told me to do. You know what I'm saying? We do this all the time. When someone's life challenges us in some way, the easiest way that we can minimize their impact sometimes is kind of make a little bit of a statue where they become a graven image and say, like, I hope you don't hear me saying don't honor those things. I, I, have, a, I have a giant picture of Martin Luther King in my house. I have stuff from the civil rights, that's not, you hear the point though, right? The point is, it's a way, we have this way of like memorializing, and what I'm trying to tell you is, I feel like we do that even with God. Well, well, well here's what God did for me way back then, and here's how God showed up, and we talk about the good old days, and in a way, that's all right, but you know, there's, um, goodness, I am so, thank you for that, for preaching with me. Um, Clearly, I'm taking my time. Can I just show you one other text real fast? Is that all right? I'm taking advantage of our Lord's resurrection right now, <laughs> just because it's easy to <laughs> Isaiah. <laughs> Isaiah, um, Isaiah 43. I haven't thought about this in a while, but I'll never forget when I saw this for the first time how much it blew my mind. You've got this text. We're around Verse 16. God is doing, the the, the prophet, God's using, starts doing kind of an extraordinary thing. He starts reminding Israel of all the ways that God had redeemed Israel before in a way that was encouraging. They always love those opening notes. The way I love the opening chimes on Edge's guitar for where the streets have no name. I know where that riff is going to take me. They hear those opening chords and like, oh, we know where this is going. Because verse 16 says, Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings out chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down. They cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. What's to do? The prophet is reminding them of the Exodus story. That's what happens whenever God's people would gather. He would remind them. They would remind each other of the Exodus. Yes, those are the good old days. God raised us up out of Egypt. He delivered us. Isn't that awesome? Yay, God. It's the familiar riff that they've always heard. And then in verse... 18, Isaiah says something contradictory. Do not remember the former things or consider the things of old. I'm about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Mm -hmm. Do you hear what the prophet says to do here? He tells God's people simultaneously to remember. He calls them to remember what God did in delivering them up out of Egypt and then tells them, Forget about that, because God's about to do something new. Now, here's what I think is going on in that passage. I think what's happening is that God is reminding his people that God is a deliverer. Remember that I am the one who delivers. When you look at your track record, when you look at your past, you can remember that I delivered you before. Now, forget all about how I did it before, Forget all about the kind of miracle you needed then. Because the miracle you needed before, you don't need now. When you're walking through the Red Sea, you need God to part the waters. When you're in the desert, you don't need God to part the waters. You need water. (laughs) You hear what I'm saying? But so long as we nostalgically, sentimentally look back to the past, the good old days of what God did before, And make God into an idol we can control because that's a story that we control. Then we keep the real live active, I like how I'm preaching right now, risen Jesus (laughs) who's staring us down, calling us into resurrected life. We can keep him at bay then. Oh, that's not what you're supposed to look like. I remember hearing the Sermon on the Mount. I was there when you did this. I was. That's awesome. But Mary, I'm not revealing myself to you now in the same form that I did before. Don't Cling to me. Don't hold me now. Don't hold on to me. That's a, that feels like a weird thing to me to say right now because, hey, if you're going to cling on to anything, well, surely you can cling on to Jesus. When all else fails, <laughs> when everybody else fails you, when your best friend won't call you back, <laughs> Jesus the one thing you can cling on to, the one person you can cling on to is Jesus. Unless he tells you, don't cling on to me. <laughs> Doesn't that just sound like the Lord? <laughs> it's always good and right to cling to Jesus unless he says, don't hold on. Because I think the point there in this text is, once again, our tendency is to hold on to a form. Our, ten- our tendency is to hold on to, to, to an idea or an ideal. Maybe you don't get to cling to Jesus in the way that you've known him before. Maybe now he wants to show you something new. Maybe he wants to reveal yourself. Maybe the miracle that you need in this moment is not what you needed 15, 20 years ago. Maybe it's time to start romanticizing the past, which, by the way, is always kind of crap to begin with. I love it when we in America talk about the good old, de- good old days for whom? Oh, well, back in the 1950s, nobody cussed on television, and we watched Donna Reed, and we oppressed half our population. Good old days for whom? That's nice they didn't cuss on television. You hear what I'm saying? We have a way of putting on rose-colored glasses when we look back at the good old days. And if we're real honest, we make the good old days out to be a little bit more awesome than they were before. (laughs) Truth is, the good old days weren't all that awesome. Actually, there was a lot of ambiguity back then. Actually, there was a lot of pain back then. Actually, there were a lot of things that were buried under the surface that are just now being revealed and brought in the light. So maybe maybe there's a time to stop romanticizing and memorializing the good old days and realizing the one who taught us the prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The good rule and reign of God always is coming to us from the future. God has a good future for us. I'm not telling you never remember the past, but you have to do it in a particular way. I, I promise I'm trying to stop preaching, but I am like, I am so not even in my skin right now. The reason we rehearse that story ever, the only reason, is to remember the fact that God is a deliverer. That's the whole lesson from what God's done for us in the past is that God is a deliverer. You've got to forget about the form. You've got to forget about the methodology. You've got to forget about what it looked like because what God wants to do in this moment, oh, my goodness. Listen, I don't know how y'all feel about this. I mean, like, but, I mean, everybody, the worship here is lively and good. I'm such a product of the Pentecostal movement, and I love it, because I love the fact that a one-eyed preacher, son of a slave, starts preaching in a rundown shack in 1906, and 50 years before the Civil Rights Movement, blacks and whites and Latinos and Asians are worshiping together, and women are preaching, and it's a powerful, powerful movement, but like in my part of the world, where we talk about that stuff, it's always, man, Azusa Street, if we just get back to, there's no going back to Azusa Street, We need to embrace the ways that God is breathing by the Spirit now. I think there'll be that same kind of radical equality to it. That's that's good. But we need a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. We need to stop always looking back wistfully over our shoulder when the resurrected Jesus is in front of us and summoning us into new life. I know I've said a lot of things, and yet there's another way in which... um, I feel like I've kind of only said one thing, too. And hey, even when I started off sharing a little bit of my testimony, can I tell you that for a holiness Pentecostal, as I refer to myself, hillbilly Pentecostal boy, son of a preacher and all that, I can promise you that redemption, to me, my idea of resurrection Would not in my head would have never been what I experienced in New Orleans a few years ago. I wouldn't have looked for that. Let's let's go off let's go off to a holy place. Let's go off to a sacred place and a safe place where like you know no no. But I'm seeing this over and over again. That that's always how God does it. Resurrection just doesn't take the form that you were expecting. And I'm not berating anybody for that. It's it's a there's a it's an invitation to see the world in front of you now through a different perspective. To see what God's doing in the midst, in in the middle of the mess. Part of what's happening for me right now, when I see a lot of things in just the world and culture that are kind of freaking me out, are there things that disturb me? Sure. And it's such a polarizing time. It's such a weird time in every way. But I truly believe even in that, that there are ancient things There are divisions, there is racism, there is all kind of seedy stuff that we just buried that right now it is in the light and nothing gets, nothing can be healed until it's brought into the light. We're having to have conversations we don't want to have. We're having to look in the mirror and look at realities that we don't want to look at. God doesn't bring anything into the light in order to shame people. God brings things into the light in order to bring healing. so even in the middle of all that tension and turmoil, and all the things that feel uncertain, my the question I keep trying to raise in the midst of all that for my own soul where is God even in the midst of these things? How is God by His spirit actually revealing things to us that need to be healed confronting things that need to be confronted Let me
0: pray for you and over. You. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Like an LP, each episode is divided into side A and side B. Side A could be a sermon, a conversation with a guest, but will always introduce some idea. Side B will always be a creative exploration of that idea through music, question answering with listeners, or quirky rabbit trails off of side A for people who want the deep cuts, not just the singles. No matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will be a resource in helping you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and sign up for our email list. Have a good day.